in our Pornos Eurasia podcast featuring a series of discussions about Russian Eurasia, about the region's politics, and about other Russian Eurasia-related topics. This is our first episode this year. In less than one month, Russia has become the scene of striking series of political events. Alexei Navalny's return to Moscow despite repeated warnings from law enforcement. His immediate arrest upon arrival right in the airport. Navalny's video about the so-called Putin's palace that he described as the world's largest bribe given to Putin by members of his inner circle. The video gained over 90 million views in a matter of just a few days. And on January 23rd, mass public rallies whose geography surpassed earlier street protests in Russia. Protesters gathered in over 120 cities and towns. It should be pointed out that the protests were unsanctioned, which means that those who joined them defied the government's ban. According to a tentative estimate by a group of Russian political analysts, the overall number of protesters reached about 200,000 people. The government responded with use of force, though not of Belarus scale. About 4,000 people were detained. Serious charges and harsh sentences are sure to follow. My today's guest is Greg Hugin, professor of political philosophy mm -hmm. at the Moscow School of Social and Economic Sciences. We're talking on January 27 about these developments and what they tell us about the state of the mind of the Russian people and the state-society relations in Putin's Russia. Hello, Greg. Hello. Thanks for having me. In, uh, in an analysis that you published just before this dramatic chain of events began to unfold, you wrote about the erosion of legitimacy, Vladimir Putin's personal legitimacy, as well as the legitimacy of his regime. Could you please tell us now, what were you based on back then? And now that we've witnessed all those stormy developments, do you think they strengthen your argument? And if so, how? Well, let's start with the, uh, brief, with the brief description of what kind of regime is that. And this is a plebiscitarian regime, which means that there is a strong leader who relies on democratic legitimacy, that is on popular support, and completely subordinates all the, all the powers, so that both legislative and executive powers are subordinated to the leader and have no political subjectivity. And this kind of support is gained through regular plebiscites and, and polls. Actually, elections have long turned into plebiscites in, in Russia. And the whole system uh, works on the idea shared by a significant part of the population, by the elites and the bureaucracy, that the leader rules because he is supported by the people. It is a different question whether he is in fact supported by the people, but the, the important part of the equation is that all the politically significant actors believe that he is supported by, by the people. And this is, this is called democratic legitimacy. Now, in this kind of system, it is crucially important, of course, to manufacture, to reproduce the evidence of the widespread political support for the leader. And what we are observing for three years already is the polls are showing the decline 
in, in support for the president. It started right after the 2018 presidential election, which was effectively a plebiscite. And it already presented us uh, with a picture of a little bit of disillusionment and a little bit of despair from the people who uh, invested a lot of expectations into, into the leader and who seemed not to live up to the expectations by keeping the, the government, keeping the prime minister, then Dmitry Medvedev was the prime minister, and also by launching the famous pension age, retirement age reform. So already then we were seeing signs of the decline in support. And this decline was pretty rapid, I think, in the next few months. Then it plateaued a little bit, and then it, it has been declining steadily but slowly. Perhaps more important is that up until 2018, there was certain homogeneity among the Russian population regarding the president and his policies. What we're seeing now over those three years is a completely different picture where several crucial cleavages have uh, emerged. And the two most important cleavages are a cleavage over the age, which means not the, the youngsters being opposed to the rest of the population, but the, the other way around, the elderly people, those aged 55 or older, and particularly 65 and older. So they are opposed to, to the rest of the population in their unconditional support for the president. In uh, the younger age groups, including the, the middle-aged people, there is obvious tiredness of, of the system, of the leader, and obvious search for political alternatives. That's, that's one of the cleavages. Yet another cleavage is partly correlated with this one, and it relates to, to the media consumption. There is significant difference in understanding of political events, of Russian politics, between those who are those who stick to to the television, which is of course completely state controlled, and those who tend to use multiple sources of information, and that that is correlated with age, because of course the elderly people are those who are relying most on the on the television, on the state-controlled television. Whereas the younger generations, uh, the middle-aged and, and the youngsters, they, of course, are far less dependent on TV. And, of course, the younger generation, they completely ignore the TV. I, I, I doubt they've ever, <laughs> ever watched the TV. And that creates a, a, a strong cleavage with, I would say, 30 to 40 percent, depends on how you count, are still behind the, the president, and the rest are either opposed to him or in the, in the zone of indeterminacy. So that, I think, is the picture uh, of how the legitimacy gets lower and, and lower. And that, of course, influences the regime, once again, because it, it depends on this kind of democratic legitimacy. And I think what was seen in, in this January, after, after the, the return of Alexei Navalny to Russia, it just makes it uh, obvious those tendencies that were already clear for the scholars for two or three years because they were watching the reaction to the key political events such as the retirement age reform, the constitutional amendments, and also reaction to, to Navalny's poisoning. All these indicators were showing that there are major cleavages in public perception. Okay, so... All of those trends you observed before the beginning of 2021. Let us now talk about the phenomenon or the factor of Alexei Navalny. 
Of course, Alexei Navalny has been quite prominent over a number of years now and arguably the most prominent figure of those who are opposed to the regime. But how has his stature changed in the past months? His stature vis-a-vis the Kremlin and his stature vis-a-vis the people. Is it true or do you agree with those who say that Navalny has risen over this recent period to be on a par with President Putin himself? as a result of what has transpired in his life, his poisoning, his return to Russia, his arrest, and his immensely popular recent video. Well, I think the truth is that he's on, he's on this rise right now, and the Kremlin is desperately trying to stop it. There is a search for a political alternative in the, in the wide sections of Russian population. Actually, I've, I've, I've just mentioned them. I've just named them. And Navalny naturally feels this demand as the most prominent, of course, the most organized opposition politician. But I would say that several things have really significantly changed over the, over the last year. Well, first thing is that Navalny turned into a politician who was recognized globally. And that's, that, I think, is important. He is no longer uh, simply a Russian politician whom people in, in the other countries are, have heard of, but he's a figure of international importance. This is probably because of his, uh, so to say, iconoclastic style and his uh, constant fighting against corrupted elites. And in, in this way, he represents some of the demands that are very widespread in many societies outside of Russia. And we can see and hear people who are now saying that they dream of having their own Navalny. And that means that Navalny becomes part of global politics. Greg, let me interrupt you for a second. What are those demands, do you think? You are saying that some of his demands make him popular even beyond Russia, not only because uh, foreign leaders are supporting him and condemning the Russian government for the way they treat Navalny, but you're saying he's also popular among or becoming popular among populations outside Russia, what are those demands that make him uh, probably a hero, not just of the Russian, of part of the Russian society, but also maybe of constituencies abroad? Well, I think uh, he embodies to a large extent this demand for a true fighter for the people, a fighter against the, the corrupt elites, which of course in Russian case are also prone to violence. So he resists this violence, he's not afraid of the violence. He fights the, the elites and he fights the inequality. So he's, he kind of represents all those people who feel deprived, who feel lost and broken in the present day politics permeated by inequality. So in this way, I think Navalny, who, who's obviously not, not a part of any kind of elite, is in a very good position to embody those demands. He is obviously a populist politician, he relies on the people, he's a democratic politician, and he fights against the rich and corrupt political elites. I think this is to a large extent the picture that we observe in many, many countries besides Russia. Of course, in Russia it is is aggravated and exaggerated beyond any limit, but to a certain extent many people find in Navalny a figure representing their own worries and demands. 
Right. So what about his video and uh, the video that even the word viral that uh, is usually applied to popular videos is an understatement because we're now seeing, I think, over 95 million views as we speak of his recent video about so-called Putin's castle and a video that probably was one of the major factors that brought people to the streets. What is the effect of the video per se? on Putin's standing, because the video, after all, is about Putin. Well, I think the, the, we, we can evaluate the effect of the video. We can understand the effect of the, of the video if we start a little bit earlier, because actually the stage was set for this kind of intervention. Navalny has gained the nationwide recognition only recently, actually before his poisoning. Because we have to understand that before the poisoning, as of early summer of the last year, only half of the country was actually aware of who Navalny is. Half of the country was totally unaware uh, of, of this guy. I mean, it, it didn't make any difference if you say Ivanov or Navalny or, or some random name. But when he gained this recognition after being poisoned, with that he gained a position from which to address totally new segments of population whom he could not reach before that. And now he's not simply present in media, and this is something that the Kremlin tried to prevent at all costs by silencing him, by not mentioning his name, and by totally ignoring him. So now he is not simply present in the media, but he is presented precisely as a political alternative to, to Vladimir Putin. At this point, it has already become almost inescapable, this kind of comparison between Putin and Navalny. This is why I'm saying that he is on the rise. He is actually now in the process of occupying this position of political alternative. People gradually get accustomed to the idea that there is, there is a second politician in, in this country. And that, of course, is, is a very strong damage to the, the plebiscitarian image of the leader as the only real politician. So now he has used this, this new position, this new arena, to run the, the informational blockade with this two-hour-long message about corruption and inequality in Russia. What I'm saying is that the stage for that kind of message was set by the fact that Navalny emerged as an alternative to the president. So he has already split previously a uniform, a unified picture of, of Russian politics. And now he addresses the audience with his typical message about corruption, inequality and lack of political responsibility among Russian elites, presenting these new audience actually with, with the things that were largely very well known among those who were interested in, in politics previously. But the fact is now he's addressing a different part of population. Russia is a very, very much depoliticized country. People try to, or have tried until recently, to avoid any kind of discussion about politics, any kind of interest in politics. So now Navalny presents them with this information, with this message, and finds, of course, a lot of, a lot of support and a lot of interest. So what, I, what I'm saying here is that this is a totally new Navalny, nothing compared to the early 2020 when, when the, the constitutional reform started. And I think that the decision to get rid of Navalny was part of the, the, the transformation of political system that we've seen in, in 2020. Now that this transformation, this reform was supposed to, to come to, to an end by the end of the year, we suddenly see the situation changing in the opposite direction. Not only did they fail to get rid of him, but on the opposite, he is now a, a real viable political alternative to Vladimir Putin. 
Right. Uh, he is, of course, an alternative. And uh, we already hear Putin's pressman, Dmitry Peskov, talk about Navalny as a rival, as a personal rival talking about which constituency is larger. Dmitry Peskov has just recently said that the constituency of Putin's supporters is larger than that of his opponents and Navalny's supporters. So comparing them this way, of course, only emphasizes the fact that Navalny has risen to be on a par with the president. Still, talking about this younger and younger constituencies and internet consumers and those who took to the streets last Saturday in Moscow on January 24, is it fair to describe all of them as Navalny's supporters? Do you think that Navalny as a figure, as a rising figure looming very large on on the Russian political scene today, is the main unifying factor of those who consider themselves the opponents of the regime? Or is it still the anti-regime sentiments or anti-Putin sentiments that unify the people? What is the way they identify themselves? I wouldn't even call it anti-regime. You know, the, the opposition to the project of the eternal conservation of the country that, that had been announced by the president last year. And that, of course, created a lot of discontent, dissatisfaction and, and opposition. So what we're seeing now is the, the reaction to, to that. I wouldn't necessarily say that all of them are Navalny supporters, but, well, let's, let's talk a little bit of, about what they are searching for. They are looking for a new political style, for a new way of doing politics, for a more inclusive way of, of doing politics uh, because they're totally alienated from the current political system or, or rather the, the political system has alienated itself from them. It makes no sense for a young person to, I don't know, to hope for a career in the Just Russia political party. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's a painful prospect for a young person. Uh, what they are looking for is a new kind of politics, more inclusive politics, a new political language. And if we look at those developments from this point of view, we can say that Navalny, to a large extent, well, he feels this niche. Uh, you've just mentioned that there's already comparison between Putin and Navalny, and that is, that is totally a different picture from what we had over the years and years. Because, uh, of course, there was no way to compare uh, Vladimir Putin to anyone. He was the embodiment of Russian politics, the only politician. Now that we have this comparison, of course, Putin has, well, actually he mm, turns into a niche politician. His political niche is still pretty large, but that presupposes or implies that there could be a, a different politician with a comparable niche that is completely incompatible with the plebiscitarian kind of leadership. So Navalny, to a large extent, uh, fills this, uh, this new niche. But there's, there's also a, a search for an alternative political project. Well, if you don't like what, what Putin suggests, which is, of course, the eternal conservation of the current state of affairs. And this project oriented into the past is, of course, it doesn't reach large parts of the younger and middle-aged audience. They are looking for an alternative political vision. And this, I think, is more problematic also for Navalny. Partly because he, he needs time to get this connection with his new audience. Their loyalty is not gained overnight. At this point, they're just interested in him. Of course, uh, he draws a lot of, uh, a lot of compassion. 
his fate draws a lot of compassion. But to become his supporters, of course, these segments of population, they need him to offer a political alternative, uh, a vision that they could subscribe to. Let us turn for a second to the other niche, to Putin's niche, if he is to follow your description, if he is becoming or has become a niche politician. Still, the part of uh, the Russian society that supports him is rather large. According to the most recent Levada poll, I think Putin's approval rating stands at 65%. I know that you are generally skeptical of national polls, but still we have this number 65 So what can you say about this niche? And I would like you, if possible, to address the notion introduced by Sam Green and Graham Robertson in their research. They were writing about what they referred to as co-construction of Putin's power. The implication being that people may support Putin or not necessarily be opposed to him. In any case, there is a public factor there. It's not raw power imposed on people. There is something coming from, um, well, from below, if you like. So what about this niche? Is it shrinking? Is the co-construction losing energy? What can you say about that? Well, it's definitely not imposed. That's exactly what I'm saying, that in a plebiscitarian regime, the democratic legitimacy means a lot. I mean, this is crucial. You're not ruling just because you have the apparatus of violence at your disposal. You're ruling because everyone thinks that there's a people behind you. And this people is demonstrated, is manufactured at each and every plebiscite you hold. So I really think that this is crucial to this kind of regime. Now, one reason why I'm so critical about the the numbers provided by the pollsters is precisely because the pollsters are part of this plebiscitarian system. The numbers that they are providing every month are actually contributing to this kind of legitimacy. Basically, what they are doing, they are holding a nationwide plebiscite with sampling techniques that every month confirms the legitimacy of the president. Well, the rating that you've referred to which is, I think, at 60 or 65 right now, is actually a plebiscitarian rating because people are put in a situation pretty much comparable to the situation of a plebiscite. And the plebiscite, this is how the plebiscite works. When you are uh, at a plebiscite, you are not supposed to choose between different alternatives. You are supposed to acclaim to the leader who has proposed a decision or who has mm, proposed his own name. What is, I think, more important is that there is a growing cleavage between this plebiscitarian rating and the other kind of rating, the, the top-of-the-mind rating, when the people are asked to name the politicians whom they trust. And they're putting polls significantly lower, like really lower, I think at, at 25 to 30%. And this difference has been rising for all these three years. What does it mean? I mean, if you ask this trust question uh, to the people, well, uh, I think 30 to 35% of them would say that they actually approve of uh, Sergei Mironov or trust Sergei Mironov, even though uh, Sergei Mironov is completely irrelevant in Russian politics. I mean, it's not, of course, a, a politician to think of as an independent political subject. This, I think, is more important, this growing cleavage between these two types of reaction. Less and less people are willing to commit to Vladimir Putin when they're not presented with a plebiscitarian type of question, but rather with a question 
about the perception of Russian politics. That, once again, I think attests to the fact that there is a huge debilitization because the majority of Russians doesn't trust any politician, and there is also a huge niche to be filled. As for Putin's niche, I think this is more or less clear that it is composed of the elderly people, once again, those who are above 55 and particularly above 65, high echelons of bureaucracy, because in the, in the lower levels it is also deteriorating, and parts of the military. So this is his stronghold, and I think this is important because inside this stronghold, well, a large part of, of this niche has actually given him an unconditional support. So basically he has a mandate for everything he would like to do for any action, including, and this is important, including a, a major war. And part of this niche, or significant part of this niche, is actually at a war right now, as we as we're speaking. So uh, there is this deep feeling, deep perception that there is, there is a war outside, and actually when you are at war, well, other questions, uh, of course, become secondary and wouldn't really matter. So this, I think, is a fair picture of Putin's support, which is, I mean, if we, if we want a, a numerical estimate, I think it is somewhere between 30 to 35 percent. Well, but right now we are in an active phase of a standoff between active opponents of however you describe it, of the regime or of this eternal continuation of Putin's rule and the regime itself. So the active phase is likely to continue. Another protest was called for the um, upcoming Sunday, January 31. Can this protest wave be sustained, do you think? And what will it mean for the regime's legitimacy? Do you think their legitimacy will continue to erode? It seems that this is what you're saying. And how does the Kremlin's defense, because the Kremlin apparently is on the defensive now, how does it look to you so far? And how do you think it will evolve? What are the political options of the Kremlin? Well, I think there are several scenarios to be considered here. We are now at a point when something like a big clash is, is, is coming up. I'm not quite sure if it comes right now in early 2021. But this is going to be a clash of the country's future between two big political projects. And one of them, of course, is represented by Vladimir Putin and his elites who would like to stay in power basically forever. And when I, when I say forever, it's, it's, it's actually not a joke because we know of uh, huge investments in Putin's immortality. I'm not saying, of course, that it's going to be successful, but that tells something about the, the political vision behind the elites. Well, they are ready to invest a lot of money in his immortality because this is the way they are projecting the, the future. This is a future which is actually an, an unending past, namely the unending late Soviet era with the major amendment of consumer society. So basically, they want to, to stay forever in, in the late Soviet years with uh, significantly increased opportunities for consumption. This is a project represented by Vladimir Putin, and the alternative project is still, I think, under construction. It is still uh, a fruit that is ripening, and we don't really see all the parameters of this project. That, I think, is something that awaits us. And it is really difficult to me to see the Kremlin 
like regaining this lost ground, except for perhaps one important opportunity that is still there, and this is opportunity for major war. And that, I think, should not be discounted. Because when the current elites are cornered, it is extremely likely that they will engage in a major war to continue the rule, to mobilize the country, to overcome political division, or to hold the sway over this political division. So this is still an option. If they don't do that, then I think now later there will be this kind of major clash. I, I don't really know if it's going to happen right now. And it is really difficult to, to predict the outcomes of the protests next Sunday or, or next week, just because a lot of things are happening. I mean, we are in a chain of major political events. And they, they're going to change the picture, the dispositions, the, the action. So at this point, we are at least in the phase of uncertainty. But in the long run, I'm, I'm sure that will uh, result in that kind of battle over of the future of the country. I can't help asking you if you're envisioning a major war, a war with whom exactly, with which country, unless you mean a war against Russian society itself. Uh, I don't think it is really important in that case because the the politics of, of Vladimir Putin is largely shaped by his art to govern the the distinction between the the internal and the external, the domestic and the foreign politics. Whenever he experiences a pressure inside the country, he immediately reframes the political struggle as the external struggle, and that's of course the the reason why. All political opponents are called traitors and spies. And that's the way he governs. He reframes all the internal opposition as external opposition. Now, if you ask me of what are the what are the best candidates, well, I would say probably I would advise to look closer to Poland. Because it was just last year that Putin has openly blamed Poland for starting the, the World War II. Poland is pretty close to Belarus, where we can expect all kinds of accidents on the border if uh, Alexander Lukashenko believes it to be useful for, for him. And then, of course, we have, uh, obviously, anti-Russian government in, in Poland and strong anti-Russian sentiments in, in Polish elites. So in that way, I think Poland might be, might be a good case. Well, at least the history of Russian-Polish animosity is fairly long. But here's my last question, I guess. So you were talking about the prospect of clashes, maybe not in the immediate future, but at some point. But in early fall this year, the Kremlin will face a serious test, and the test will be the September election to the Duma. Uh, what are your expectations for the September election? This is not too far away. And what is the likely cost? for ensuring a pro-Kremlin majority in the Duma? One scenario that I think is uh, the most interesting, I'm not sure it is the, the most probable scenario, but I think the most interesting is that the selection is going to turn into yet another plebiscite. Because this erosion of, of public support makes Putin hold those plebiscite more and more frequently. And in that case, if he throws himself in this, in this battle, in one way or another. I think the the aim is going to change radically. He already kind of indicated that he wants to enlarge the the number of seats for the ruling party, 
which of course is in a strong contrast to, to the prevailing public sentiment, because the party is, of course, unpopular and grows increasingly unpopular. In that case, I think the stage is already pretty much set for a new kind of voting. We have already seen that last year with a very different pattern of organizing the, the vote with uh, a lot of new opportunities uh, for fraud, with increased opportunities for e-voting that turned into a several-day-long election. The vote was held outside of the polling stations massively. Now the, the idea of the secret vote is to a large extent undermined, and we've seen a lot of force uh, a lot of people being forced in very new ways and, and larger portions of population being forced uh, to vote. I think if Putin struggles to ascertain his legitimacy, he's pretty much likely to approach this vote as yet another plebiscite and use all these techniques to secure a much higher percentage. And then, of course, the question is what will be the, the popular reaction? Then at some point, of course, you just cross the threshold and the results are at a striking lack of correspondence with, with the public sentiment. The question is whether we're going to cross this threshold by September. Well, thank you. The election in September is something that we are sure to see. We see we'll see the results. We'll see the tricks the Kremlin is going to use and we'll see the cost. Thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you.